0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hello, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. I'm Angie Bassioni. Here with me today is Dean Knox, a professor in Wharton's Department of Operations, Information and Decisions. Also, here with me is his colleague, Jonathan Momolo, who is a professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton. They've joined me to talk about a very important topic that is dominating the news cycle right now, and that's police reform. The issue of racial bias in policing is in the spotlight, particularly because of the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Philando Castile, and a number of other Black citizens who have lost their lives during an interaction with police officers. The phrase defund the police became a rallying cry across many American cities over the summer as protesters marched for social justice. But police reform isn't as simple as a catchphrase. The professors will bring some clarity to this complicated subject and explain why the national conversation around police reform needs to start with better data. Dr. Knox, thanks for being here. Thank you. Dr. Momola, thank you also for being here.
1: Thanks. Happy to be with you.
0: So as scholars, you two approach this issue from an analytical point of view when it's so emotional for so many people. You've published several papers on it. You formed a nonpartisan research group to help bring some science to the chaos. But there's still so much disagreement on even the most fundamental aspects of racial bias in policing. Why is that? I'm gonna ask that question starting with you, Dr. Knox.
2: Well, these cases, um, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, uh, so many others, they grab our attention because the facts of the case are just so outrageous. And that's important because it brings attention to this important issue. But but for those of us who are seeking to reform policing, we need to keep in mind that these are instances of what's unfortunately a very common problem. The last year alone, police were responsible for almost 2,000 known deaths in America. It's a leading cause of death, uh, police are, among young men right after a heart disease and cancer. And that burden uh, of of police killings falls on Black men especially. Uh, Frank Edwards and co-authors have shown that this group is two and a half times more likely to be killed by police than white men. And so for those of us who are studying this, this whole system, uh, we want to know how, how it is that we got to this point. And the answer turns out to be complicated because bias manifests at so many levels in the system. Uh, the question is, uh, are officers discriminating in the moment when they pull the trigger or use force, either unconsciously or consciously? Or is the bias coming earlier when officers are discriminating in who they detain, like stopping minorities for jaywalking or suspicious behavior, whatever that is? And, and of course... Uh, We know that if you don't stop somebody, then the encounter doesn't escalate to the point of violence. So both of these levels matter. And maybe even the bias comes earlier in where cities and police departments choose to send officers uh, over policing minority neighborhoods so that police have just more encounters with police officers uh, in minority neighborhoods than, than white neighborhoods. The problem is we know far less than we need to about these questions. And what we do know says that we're massively underestimating the problem because of data limitations and the poor quality of existing statistical analyses.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the data limitations. Dr. Momolo, can you tell me more about the constraints of data in the research and how you go about solving that problem? I mean, how do you quantify racism?
1: Yeah, so first I would say our first step is that we we conceptualize racial bias in policing as a causal question. That is, we seek to test whether, say on average, uh, civilians of one racial group who get treated a certain way by police would be treated differently if we substituted otherwise comparable civilians of another racial group into the same encounter, so sort of holding all else equal. And that's obviously a very difficult statistical problem, but um, part of the problem with solving it is that until now, much of the literature has not even really defined this question in concrete statistical terms. So it doesn't define, say, like what exact statistical quantity we're testing for, or what's the unit of, of analysis? Is it the civilian? Is it the officer? Is it the encounter? and what are are the assumptions we'd need to make in order to move from, say, inferring a correlation to inferring a causal link. And so much of our work has focused on clarifying these building blocks because until you know what they are, uh, you're just sort of flying blind in terms of the statistics. Now, once you have those things defined, you need to locate detailed data on police-civilian interactions that allow you to account for objective circumstances uh, in which police encounter civilians, things like time of day and Um, you know, what's going on at the time police foresee a civilian, how they're behaving, things that may differ across racial groups in ways that could affect how police end up treating civilians. And so knowing these details can go a long way toward making apples-to-apples comparisons that allow us to isolate the role of race or at least come close to doing that. And so the problem is that many places don't track that sort of detailed data, But even in places that do, there's this other problem that Dean alluded to, which is that police only record activity on enforcement events like stops or arrests. And in our work, we show that if there's there's racial bias in these initial detainment decisions, like whether to stop somebody, then simply comparing some outcome like the use of force using data on these detainments will underestimate discrimination because we'll be missing that entire source of bias that went into stopping someone in the first place. So we've developed ways to correct for that fact Um, to show the range of possible discrimination in things like the use of force, accounting for bias in initial decisions like stopping. And I would say in general, uh, an overarching theme of our work is that police-civilian encounters are a complex, multi-stage process, and race can play a role in each part, and that without accounting for all those stages, it's very easy to get incorrect or even completely misleading estimates of racial bias in police behavior.
2: I think that's Exactly, the problem that we're facing, and exactly why statistical inference is, is so hard in this setting. Uh, it, it's also why, because people have only looked at you know, isolated aspects, aspects of this complicated problem, it's why we see researchers use the exact same data set, analyze it with different methods, and come to sometimes entirely opposite conclusions, which has really muddied the water on this important policy debate. And our goal is just to try to bring some clarity to all of this so that policymakers can make informed decisions.
0: Well, you're both talking about um, better data analytics that can be used to help with police reform, but data analysis comes after the fact. It's after those encounters uh, with civilians. What about the upfront work that it takes to root out bias in police departments? What about hiring and diversity training and you know, uh, actual in the field training that would help officers approach their work with less bias? How can research, how can your research help with that? I'll let you start, Dr. Knox.
2: Uh, we don't see these things as contradictory. Uh, I think retrospective data analysis, analyzing data that that we already have, can help inform future uh, future practices. Exactly the kinds of things that you're talking about: uh, training, tactics, uh, hiring, and, and so. And training specifically, there's a lot that we don't know. Uh, this is something that we're working on in a new collaboration with the Illinois Holocaust Museum, which provides training to the Chicago Police Department, working to improve how CPD trainings. Uh, Trainees learn about civil rights, ethics, bias, things like that. And we're trying to evaluate the impact of their efforts, but that project is just getting started. Uh, In terms of tactics, uh, Jonathan has done a lot of work on this. We have reason to believe that we can dial back or eliminate many controversial uh, aggressive tactics because their purported benefits just aren't supported by the data. So here I'm thinking of things like police militarization, dressing up officers like they're going to war.
0: Um, So what you're talking about is some of this research being applied proactively rather than retroactively to some of these issues that these common issues that we're seeing across departments across the country.
2: Right. Uh, Things like police militarization encourage no-knock SWAT raids that the data shows seem to damage police from a public perception angle, but it doesn't actually seem to make officers safer, uh, which was sort of the promise going in. Uh, on the hiring side, uh, we have a new preprint about the role of diversification, which is one of the oldest proposed hiring reforms in policing. So here we're using the most fine-grained policing data that's ever been collected, again, looking at Chicago. And what we can say is that diversity does seem to help. So if you're a unit commander and you're deciding whether to send in a, a black officer or a white officer into the field to patrol a particular beat, what we've shown is that you can su- expect substantially less stops and arrests from the black officer, uh, mostly in terms of discretionary enforcement, a so smaller number of drug arrests or stops for suspicious behavior, whatever that means. Uh, but if you look at these officer groups, the way that they police serious crimes, things like violent crime arrests, we don't see much of a difference, no, which just, uh, is just really telling us that the, the gap in the treatment of civilians is coming on the, on the discretionary side. And similarly, we've found that female officers use far less force. And so these are, uh, as you said, it, it's not... it's not a randomized control trial that lets us directly infer uh, whether this is going to have an impact in future hiring, but it is the first step. It's the first thing that we'd want to know if we're trying to evaluate the promise of diversification, which is being widely considered right now. The reason we're able to draw these conclusions is for the first time with the data that we've collected, we're able to compare officers in exactly the same district, exactly the same beat, the same collection of city blocks, same time of day, same shift. So even though we don't know exactly how the civilians that they observe are behaving, we do know that the officers that we compare are are facing that similar pool of civilian behavior. So the best evidence we have right now says diversification can help uh, with the caveat that we need data to many more places, of course, beyond just Chicago.
1: Yeah, I would say another promising avenue that uh, we've seen in our our work is um, that uh, supervisor oversight can play sort of an immediate role in changing police behavior So I've done a study in New York looking at uh, stop and frisk during the mid-2000s, which was sort of um, out of control in its volume during that period, where upwards of 90% of people being stopped on the street uh, were found to be guilty of no crime, and the vast majority of these stops were of young uh, Black and Latinx men. And uh, in this study, I exploit the fact that uh, there was a sudden change to how oversight was conducted, where... Uh, police had to write down in paragraph form exactly what led them to stop each individual person and then at the end of their shift show that justification to their supervisors. And what we see after years of... Basically, you know, 97 percent of stops not producing evidence of the of the suspected crime. We see a, a basically a doubling of that rate at which stops are ex post justified by evidence. In other words, they're making more of the right kinds of stops and fewer of the wrong kinds of stops, simply as a result of having to justify their actions to their superiors.
0: You're saying that one step, that one intermediate step, that the officers had to take in terms of their paperwork helped helped them refocus on their actions. And it helped uh, reduce the number of minority men who were detained. That's very that's that's fascinating. What does that indicate to you as a researcher?
1: Well, actually, it draws on a lot of lessons we've had for, for a long time about how bureaucratic politics work, which is that we have this problem between you know managers wanting one thing and um, you know, employees perhaps behaving in ways uh, that are different. And in policing agents, we tend to call that a principal agent problem. In policing agencies, this problem is very pronounced because officers work out of sight, sort of out of the reach of their commanders. Um, And uh, so it's, you know, one of the ways that it's been theorized that you can help to solve these sorts of problems is to increase oversight, increase monitoring, and uh, increase the threat of sanction if employees don't behave in the ways that you want. And so there's sort of two problems here. One is, you know, supervisors have to want the right things, right? They have to be telling their employees, in this case, officers, you shouldn't be stopping people unnecessarily, which was not the message they were giving in New York for a long time. And second, they have to check up on these things so that officers realize that if they don't behave as intended, you know, there might be some consequence in terms of their careers. And so I think what the study shows is that Officers, in many ways, are like a lot of other bureaucrats that we've studied for a long time. They respond to incentives. They want a paycheck. They want to please their boss or at least not get in trouble. And we can use some of those same managerial tools to change behavior.
0: So I mentioned earlier that the two of you have co-founded an organization with the help of analytics at Wharton. That organization is called Research on Policing Reform and Accountability. I would like for you to tell us a little bit about that group and its purpose. I understand that one of the goals is to push back against what you describe as, quote, bad science. What is bad science, Dr. Malo? What does that mean?
1: Um, we take a quantitative approach to the study of policing that focuses on the careful use of statistical methods to quantify things like racial bias. Unfortunately, the literature on policing and racial bias has a lot of variance in terms of quality. So some work is very well done, and, but often make, it makes fundamental errors that violate just axioms of data analysis. And so occasionally these errors slip through the peer review process and gain notoriety. And when that happens, we seek to comment on this work uh, loudly, if necessary, to clarify the, to the public and the policymakers that the evidence being presented does not match the claims being made. So to be clear, I don't mean to say we seek to critique work just because it arrives at a particular conclusion, We're open to following the evidence wherever it leads. But we need to call out errors in analysis when they arise or risk having these important debates tainted by faulty evidence and also risk the credibility of of science being threatened so that it won't be taken seriously um, when it needs to be. So as one example, we spent a substantial amount of time over the past year critiquing a study uh, that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, one of the um, most prominent journals in the world, that claimed there was no racial bias in police shootings. Um, and that study was recently retracted after a year of our critiques. Uh, the study was widely cited in the media and given in uh, even in congressional hearings. But when you stripped away all the statistical jargon in the piece, it became clear that all it was really showing was that most people who get shot by police are white. Now, we live in a majority white country. So that is not an informative statement about racial bias. What we want to know is, say, of the times white and black civilians encounter police, how often is each group shot? And then we'd want to adjust the relevant differences between those encounters to try to isolate the role of race. But for that, you need data on all sorts of police encounters, not just records of fatal shootings. Um, so this, and, and that's all the study analyzed. So it was just a totally misleading study that ended up contaminating a very important conversation. And as, you know, scholars seeking evidence-based solutions, we view it as our role To point out these sorts of mistakes and try to explain them in ways that are accessible both to experts and the lay public um, so they can understand uh, the issues at play. And there's one more thought I would say. Along the same lines, we also published papers on how to define racial bias statistically and how to use statistics properly to test for it so researchers can avoid these pitfalls moving forward.
0: It's a really tall order, considering in this country sometimes we even have trouble defining what race is in a lot of cases. Um, so, Dr. Nas, I'm going to throw this back to you. What Dr. Momolo was just talking about goes back to the thing you said earlier about how a lot of the research that has been published about this is in conflict. Uh, papers are in conflict with their their um, conclusions. Is that what you're referring to as bad science?
2: Uh, absolutely. Uh, and this is just one example of the many instances that, we, that we've seen. Uh, I think Jonathan already, already talked through this, but it, it's really at, at the heart of it. Some of the problems in this literature are problems of basic logic. Uh, so Jonathan talked about how racial discrimination is. It's a statement that when a black person encounters a police officer, they're more likely to be shot. The chances of being shot if black are higher than the chances of being shot if white. But this study isn't analyzing that the study in the proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences is again a very prestigious journal is mm-hmm. saying if you're shot, what are the chances that you're black? So again, it's shot if black versus black if shot. Uh, so you know, just basically the, the exact opposite of what we're looking for. And so, communicating that point to the general public is is uh, is a difficult task given you know, the, all the statistical jargon that's around it. But it's, it's important to make sure that. This bad information doesn't contaminate the debate but there are right. many other issues that come to mind
0: what uh, what are some of the other issues
2: well so there are cases like uh there was a recent paper by by roland fryer uh, which is showing that among the people that officers uh, stop they use force on minorities and white people at about the same rates but among the stopped right? and again it's, it's kind of a, a basic logical issue so if you think about the kinds of minorities that are stopped in america often for sure. Some of them are committing violent crimes, uh, like robbing a bank, for example, but others are doing completely innocuous activities like just jaywalking or maybe even committing no crime at all. So you think about that group, and then you think about the white civilians that are stopped. Most of them are engaged in uh, are engaged in more serious acts, but like the bank robbery example. And so that's, this is just the nature of, of discrimination and arrest. And so if you think about those two groups, if if officers are using force on white civilians who are bank robbers and black civilians who are partly jaywalking and partly, you know, some portion of them are also robbing banks and they're using force at the same rate. That's not evidence of no bias. Uh, That's horrifying. Mm. And so without thinking about this whole system of how discrimination manifests in the decision to stop, to arrest and use force and so on, we just can't get reasonable estimates of what we really care about, which is discrimination and policing as a whole.
0: It is so hard for the public to wrap their arms around some of these things that you're talking about. So I imagine it's also hard for policymakers, for police departments. So Dr. Knox, tell me what, with all the information that you've learned from your research, what are some of the things that police departments, that legislators can do right now to tackle this issue of reform?
2: Well, the first thing that that we need is is transparency. Uh, So data transparency, things like uh, disclosing how officers are assigned to patrol, what neighborhoods they're in, uh, how often they're on the street. Uh, who they stop, who they arrest, who they use force against—again, uh, sunlight is is the best disinfectant. Uh, we need more transparency about civilian complaints and how allegations of officer misconduct are investigated. Working with civilian oversight organizations, the neutral third parties, to build public trust in the process and allow allow the general public to have faith that justice is being served when these, uh, you know, when this misconduct comes to light. There's a lot that needs to be done. And one of the issues is that racial bias, these issues don't manifest in the same way across uh, across every agency in America. In, in one city, it may be discrimination in stop and frisk, in, in which uh, in which individuals are detained. And, and the discrimination may be against uh, uh, primarily black population. In another in another police department, it could be against Latino drivers who are stopped and targeted for unconstitutional uh, search at a higher rate. And without having the data, without having you know, not just our team, but a, a much larger group of researchers analyzing it so that for many species across many contexts, it's difficult to know what the right answer is in any particular uh, in any particular place and time.
0: Dr. Momolo, I'm going to ask you the same question. What are some of the tactics that uh, can be done right now to tackle this issue of reform?
1: So I think one thing that could probably be done is to just uh, – uh, reduce the, or elim- in some cases eliminate entirely some of the aggressive tactics uh, that have been employed based on faulty premises. so things we've talked about like stop and frisk and so-called militarized policing, which have become sort of are uh, you know originally conceived, for example, the use of SWAT teams which I would classify as militarized policing was originally conceived to handle violent emergencies like active shooter scenarios. Now they're used every day to serve search warrants. In fact, their use in emergencies are, are quite a small portion of what they do. Um, the justification for that is that they you know, they help lower crime and protect officers, but when you analyze that in data, that actually doesn't um, uh, show, show up to be true. So I think some of these aggressive tactics that uh, you know people are worried violate their civil rights and are being used in discriminatory ways can be relaxed or eliminated because the premises on which they're founded are just, just are faulty. Um, in other cases, I think we're seeing evidence that um, oversight initiatives can help. Um, giving new orders to police, you know, a lot of the, in a lot of these cases, it's, it, you know, the officers certainly play a role in how, in how bias manifests. But a lot of these are just policy decisions where officers are, are, you know, carrying out uh, orders uh, that are going to um, uh, cause bias in the system. So uh, new rules, oversight, uh, re- relaxation of aggressive tactics. And then um, as, you know, just to echo what Dean said, uh, a much widespread, more widespread and systematic data collection effort. We have 18,000 police departments in this country. Most of the really fine-grained data we have on policing comes from a relatively small portion of big city police departments. Um, and so we have a lot more work to do to test. You know, Just because we, some, we see some uh, reform show some benefits in one place doesn't mean it's going to work in another context. And so we need a lot more data from a lot more places to figure out um, what works.
0: That is a tall order, gentlemen. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done. It, it seems like when you're when you're talking about some of these these um, reform measures, it it makes me think about all the thing all the policies that were put in place maybe 20 30 years ago that were designed to make our communities safer. Now we have to take another look at them and go maybe they're not working in the way in which they were intended. Um, So there's a lot of work to be done. I want to thank both of you for being here today to discuss what is perhaps one of the most pressing agenda items for voters during this election season going into 2021. Police reform has definitely become part of the national conversation. So it's very important that you're bringing this academic rigor and this science to what is a very emotional debate. I look forward to talking with you again soon to learn what you're learning as your research continues. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for having us. Thanks. Appreciate it.
0: If you're interested in reading the professor's research papers and learning more about the group that they founded, please visit policingresearch.org. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more like it online at Knowledge at Wharton. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.